Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to be gathered with your people again, to hear from you, to be comforted by your words, which are an anchor for our soul. In a tumultuous world, in things that uh, change so rapidly in our culture, amidst the uncertainties of what men may do, we trust in you. We pray that even this evening, your words from the prophet Daniel would be an encouragement to us in the ways that you intend. We pray that your word would be an anchor to how we think about our world around us, how we think about your sovereign hand over all things. And I pray that this text would cause us to cry out, your kingdom come. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll turn your attention this evening to Daniel chapter 11. So open your Bibles and turn there with me if you will. Daniel chapter 11 is the uh, beginning of the vision, the last vision of the book of Daniel. And this vision had an extended front porch, which was Daniel chapter 10. It was a long intro into the final vision of Daniel. And so we will look at the beginning of this vision in the first part of chapter 11. I want you to think about our world for just a moment. We are ginning up for another election cycle. The banners and posters are plastered all over our city. And you see the promises made on flimsy cardboard and stakes in the front yards of your neighbors and on every intersection of our town. We're witnessing once again the tumult of the decisions before us to decide Who will rule? Who will reign? Or who will go to some building somewhere and make some decisions that may or may not affect our lives? This is a cynical perspective on current state of politics coming out from me even now. And my heart has been in Daniel chapter 11 all week. And so my perspective is perhaps a little skewed. I hope skewed towards a big picture and a big picture that I hope to share with you this evening. We live in a culture right now that goes back and forth between parties, that goes back and forth between political views. It may represent the reality that we have something like a 50-50 culture split in our nation. And it's hard to really know. We can't trust the polls. Uh, The media and Hollywood, in, in an imbalanced way, portray realities and make some things seem bigger than they really are. So it's hard to get a real pulse on America. What does America truly believe? Uh, There certainly is not one pulse. It's hard to get a sense of even what the median is. And we've lived in this back and forth culture war. It's hard as a believer to feel any real affiliation with any political party. Uh, Certainly, I, I gravitate towards some political ideas that I think afford better with a biblical worldview, but no party represents a biblical worldview. No party represents my own convictions. And we live in an increasingly polarized society where there has been a flip-flop from one view to another, and the the people sort of caught in the middle sway between the polar extremes of one thing and another. So we end up with a different kind of administration uh, every election cycle. It's hard as a believer to navigate temporal circumstances with eternal priorities. 
I certainly want the best, most comfortable, most free world that I can live in now. I love the liberties that our country has afforded, and I certainly appreciate those throughout our country's history who have bled for those very freedoms. We don't take any of those things lightly. And yet we realize that we are, in one sense, victims of the changing whims of politicians. We are victims of the changing winds of political climate. We are in the crosshairs of the ebbing and flowing of the tides of political change. We feel all those things acutely. And yet, in the big scheme of things, living in America in the 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries has probably been some of the most stable living possible in world history. We certainly have been privileged, and yet we feel in an era where truth has been flung to the ground and people are throwing their arms in the air wondering if there is such a thing as truth. When language breaks down and pronouns break down and we are beginning to feel the effects of postmodernism where we can't even communicate with one another. What will happen next? I don't know if you feel that tension. The tension to pull up a social media feed or a news feed or headlines. And and if any of you still get newspapers delivered to your door, waiting for that thump and go open those pages and see what has happened overnight while I was sleeping. And it seems that things change so fast now in our time that we wonder, is there any ground on which to stand? I want us to look at Daniel chapter 11 this evening because we will be carried through the tumult of centuries of political upheaval. In fact, it's hard to keep the details straight in Daniel 11. It's hard just to read it and follow the storyline in Daniel 11 because empires rise and fall in the span of one verse and then two more verses. And then six successive Assyrian wars are fought in the span of 15 more verses. And we just feel this violent tug of war between empires. And we feel this ebb and flow and the unstable, uncertain ground of the changing times and political turmoil that is human history. So let's read Daniel chapter 11. We'll read verses 2 through 20. That's our section this evening. And then we'll walk through the details. Here is the vision given to Daniel, the last vision. From the angel. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise. And he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides him. Then the king of the south will grow strong, along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be great dominion indeed. After some years they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come out to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up, along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her, as well as those who supported her in those times. 
But one of her family line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. Also their gods, with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail." For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Then the king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops." For there will be no strength to make a stand. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face to the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. The end. (laughs) Did you understand? There's a lot of details in this section of Daniel 11, and I'm going to give you the outline for the entirety of the chapter, and then we'll focus on the verses we just read. Verses 2 through 20 deal with the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the division of the Greek Empire. Verses 21 to 35 deal with the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, that little horn that we looked at earlier in Daniel, the prefigurer of the Antichrist. And then verses 36 to 45 of Daniel look at the reign of Antichrist himself. So the sweep of Daniel 11 takes us from the time of Daniel all the way up to the end of the reign of Antichrist and the coming of Messiah in his kingdom. That is what this last vision is about. So it brings about wars and rumors of wars and the Persian Greek empires and Antiochus Epiphanes and finally Antichrist's rule. That is what the chapter is about. Daniel chapter 11, cover, or 11, 2 through 20, what we're discussing tonight, covers Persia and Greece, those two empires. So let's look first at the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire in Daniel chapter 11 gets all of one verse. Daniel eleven two. Now I will tell you the truth, the angel tells Daniel. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm 
of Greece. So after Cyrus, go back to Daniel 10.1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So that's current to Daniel's time. After Cyrus, you have three Persian kings that rise up. And, and what's remarkable about Daniel chapter 11 is the detail that Daniel gives was fulfilled in exquisite detail in intertestamental history. That is, the details that are given here are traceable in the histories that we can read today in the kings that came and went in this time period. So three Persian kings after Cyrus were Camses. 530 to 522 BC, Smerdis, 522 BC, and Darius the first, Histospes, from 522 to 486. There will be an exam. Uh, you can pick up the exam papers on your way out the door and turn those in to me by the end of the evening. No, there's no exam. You don't have to remember these details. Don't, don't try to write down all these dates. Um, the, the point is to just hear the flow of history here and recognize that each detail that Daniel gives corresponds to real details, real people, real events in subsequent history. This is predictive prophecy on a scale not found anywhere else in terms of its details and fulfillment. Daniel writes, then a fourth will arise. He will become strong. He has far more riches than all of them, and he will arouse the Greek empire. There are a few other Persian kings that exist after Darius Histospes, but uh, they're not listed here. The culmination of the Persian Empire uh, comes after the fourth king. The fourth is Xerxes from 486 to 465 BC. And Xerxes is important because he launched a military campaign against Greece. He had amassed more wealth than the previous three kings of Persia. He was feeling strong, and he decided to campaign militarily against the Greece, uh, the empire of Greece. So Persian rulers followed him, not mentioned by Daniel, but Xerxes is mentioned likely because his attack on Greece provoked Alexander the Great's attack of Persia. And so we come to the per end of the Persian empire. Look at verse 3. In verses 3 and 4, we cover the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great. As uh, a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his own authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. This describes Alexander the Great. It describes the end of the Persian Empire and the bringing in of the Greek Empire. Alexander the Great attacked the Persian Empire in 334 BC and had complete victory over the entirety of the Persians in 331 BC. And from there, he went on to conquer everything that he could get to. Every piece of territory he saw, he thought he could conquer. There is debate about whether he was stopped short militarily or whether he just gave up. But in 334 BC in Babylon, he died. He died of a sickness, probably a fever uh, at a party. And so Alexander the Great, for all of his greatness, for all of the expansion of the Greek Empire and for the demolition of the Persian Empire, gets a mention of one verse here in Daniel 11. And then the division of the Greek Empire occurs in Daniel 11:4 As soon as he has arisen the text says 
His kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass. This is the division of the Greek empire after Alexander's death amongst his four generals. And Daniel has already told us about this in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8. It's interesting that Alexander the Great's two sons were murdered, and so he had no descendants to rule. This is exactly what Daniel says in Daniel 11.4. Though not to his own descendants, the empire was divided up to the four points of the compass. Those four points represent four commanders, four generals of his army, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And Daniel's prophecy from the rest of this time forward in Daniel 11 will focus on two of those generals that became two of the divisions of the Greek empire. And so the rest of our time this evening will be spent on this divided Greek empire and the wars between north and south. So there's a map on the screen, which is the next slide. And you can see there the the yellow band. Those are the Seleucids. Those are the kings of the north. By the way, what we'll see in Daniel eleven five through 20, there's not just one king of the north. It may look like that at face value. There is a king of the north and another king of the north and another king of the north. They're all referred to as the king of the north. Those are the rulers of the Seleucid Empire. So again, a segment of the Greeks. And you can see how much territory they took over. Modern day Iraq and Iran, parts of Afghanistan and Pakistan, uh, all the way up into Turkey, And then the other empire that we'll be looking at is the Ptolemies. That's the green segment of the map there. That is the Roman general Ptolemy who conquered and ruled over the area of Egypt. And there are times where his empire uh, went into the Mediterranean Sea. And and so these, the yellow and the green are just going to be fighting for the rest of this time uh, that we're looking at. So this is an imbalanced outline. Point one was one verse. Point two was two verses. And the rest of our time this evening is verses 5 through 20, which spans the Syrian wars from 323 B.C. to 175 B.C. And they span the totality of six separate wars between the north and the south. Times of peace in between. So let's just follow along Daniel's narrative here of the battles between the Seleucids. Again, that's the yellow. We'll call that the Syrian empire and the Ptolemies who governed the Egyptian area. And, and notice where these two are. If you're familiar with your Middle Eastern geography, what country lies right in the crosshairs of these two empires, the yellow and the green? Israel. And that is why we're not looking at the conquests of four separate empires. We're only looking at two because what is critical in this text is the way the the changing tides of geopolitics affects God's people in the promised land. That becomes the focus for the rest of Daniel. That is why we'll focus on Antiochus Epiphanes later in the chapter and then the Antichrist later in the chapter and then the end of time related to the land in Daniel chapter 12. So these north and south wars are important because as they fight each other, they keep crossing the land of Israel and having significant impact on the economics and the welfare and the peace of God's people in the land. This is going to be significant takeaway for the people of Israel as they're leaving Babylonian captivity without national spiritual conversion and going back to the land. What can they expect? So here we go. Verse 5. Then the king of the south will grow strong, 
along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His domain will be a great dominion indeed. This king of the south is Ptolemy the first. Ptolemy the first Soter. He reigned 323 to 285 BC. And so he is the first Ptolemy. It's what the Ptolemaic Empire, the Ptolemaic reign over the area of Egypt or the southern area of this former Grecian Empire, uh, they all get called the Ptolemies after this. He is Ptolemy the first. One of his princes in verse 5 uh, is a man named Seleucus the first, Nicator. And he is significant because uh, he did not perform particularly well in some, of his, his, in some of his responsibilities. And then there was a feud between him and Ptolemy. And eventually, Seleucus broke out on his own and became the head of the Seleucid dynasty. And you can see there the yellow is much bigger than the green. And so as Daniel describes this along with one of his princes, that's Seleucus, who gained ascendancy over him and obtained dominion. And notice the last phrase of verse 5, his dominion will be a great dominion indeed. And you can see that on the map. Yellow is bigger than green. And so that is the Seleucid empire from Seleucus I, Nicator. All right, look at verse 6 of Daniel 11. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. Uh, But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in, and the one who sired her, that could be translated, and her child, as well as those who supported her in those times. So Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, is the the successor to Ptolemy I, and Antiochus II is successor to Seleucus I. So now you've got Ptolemy in the south, Ptolemy II, and Antiochus II in the north, and they're fighting each other. And they come together and make a treaty in 250 BC. And Ptolemy's daughter, a gal by the name of Berenice, Ptolemy set her to marry Antiochus II, the king of the north. So in in the hopes of this treaty being cemented by a marriage, uh, maybe we won't fight against each other. But Ptolemy's design was that if his daughter is married to Antiochus II, then her son would become heir to the Seleucid Empire, and then the Ptolemies could rule all of it. So there's these... Uh, schemes and chicanery going on behind the scenes. And, and under the banner of a, of a uh, treaty of peace with an intermarriage to secure the peace, uh, there is really this subterfuge and this desire to take over the whole. The problem with all of this scheming is that Antiochus II was already married. And he was married to a very powerful woman named Laodice. Uh, eventually... Uh, Antiochus divorced Berenice. He, he dismissed Laodice, his first wife, in order to marry Berenice, in order to secure this treaty and have peace between the empires. Uh, but then eventually he went back on that deal, uh, got rid of his second wife, Berenice, and remarried Laodice. So Laodice was reinstated as Antiochus's wife, and she turned around and murdered him. She also murdered Berenice, and she murdered their child. Verse 7, but one of her family line, uh, Nasby says one of her descendants, 
Um, but literally the Hebrew reads, uh, one of the roots of her family tree will arise in his place and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he will deal with them and display great strength. This is Ptolemy the third, Euagertes. And he ruled over the Ptolemies, again, that southern uh, dominion from 246 to 221. He ruled in the place of his father, Ptolemy II. And he wanted to retaliate for his sister's murder. I don't know if you can keep all this straight. This sounds like a a dynasty or a a Dallas, uh, sort of, if you remember back that far to those uh, old, I don't even know what you call that genre of television show. Uh, Ongoing drama sitcom, or not sitcom. Soap opera, thank you. This is like one of those soap operas. And he wanted retaliation for his sister's murder, so he attacked the king of the north. And then he put Laodice to death, and he sacked the Syrian capital of Antioch. This is what he describes, the angel describes to Daniel in verse 7. One from the family line. So that is the brother uh, uh, making amends for his sister's murder, and he arises in his place, that is, in his father's place, Ptolemy before him. And this one coming in her line, Ptolemy III, comes against their army, that is, the northern army, enters the fortress of the king of the north, and deals with them and displays great strength. That is exactly what happened. He made it all the way to Antioch, the Syrian capital, and laid siege to it. In verse 8, Daniel records for us, also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity to Egypt, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. So Ptolemy III stole the gods of the Syrians and took them with him to Egypt. He also, while he was there, took some of the Egyptian relics and took them back to Egypt, and so he was hailed in Egypt as a benefactor. So here this foreigner is bringing back the Egyptian goods back to the Egyptians from Assyria that had stolen them in the first place and took them back to Egypt. So he's hailed as a hero in Egypt. He sacked the the capital of the Assyrian Empire and he is winning. Verse 9, Daniel records, Then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. So the latter here refers to the king of the north. This is Seleucus II. He is the son of Laodice, and he is king of the north. He made a brief excursion into Ptolemy's territory, but then he went back home. This is exactly what history bears out. Daniel records in verse 10, His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, but one of them will keep on coming and will overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. Uh, Seleucus III reigned from 226 to 223, um, and he was murdered. And then Antiochus III, his brother, so now Antiochus, the brother of Seleucus, is reigning over the Seleucid Empire, waged war against the Ptolemies. Uh, He had some success, overflowed and passed through, as Daniel said. And then in verse 11, we have the next update. The king of the south will be enraged and will go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. This is exactly what happened when Ptolemy IV counterattacked, and he took 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants, 
and he matched up with Antiochus in the north, Antiochus III's 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants, and Ptolemy I at the Battle of Raphia, and Raphia is in the land of Israel. In 217 B.C., this battle was fought on Israeli territory, and Israel was in the crossfire of this north and south war. Notice verse 12, when the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. This is about, this is about Ptolemy IV, again, the ruler of the southern realm. In his counterattack, in his defeating of, a, of another army, he was proud. And while he destroyed thousands, it was said that he destroyed tens of thousands by history. But the Ptolemies could never have dominance. They, they weren't totally victorious in terms of taking over territory. We come to Daniel eleven thirteen. The king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. This is the shift to final Seleucid control of the region. Fifteen years after the battle of Raphia. In 202 BC, Antiochus III invaded with a large army when Ptolemy IV died. And the Ptolemaic dynasty was being governed by the five-year-old son, Ptolemy V. Now, this is what Daniel records in verse 13. And verse 13 marks the shift to Seleucid rule over the region of Israel. In verse 14, we read this. In those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people, they will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. Verse 14 describes Israelites who sided with Antiochus III against the Ptolemies. They are called here literally sons of the violent ones. These are Jews who aided Antiochus III and they went against the Egyptians. Interestingly, the Egyptian general Scopus uh, was said by history to put down the Jewish uprising. So even though the Egyptians lost the war, the Egyptians had time to punish the Jews who had gone against them in siding with Antiochus. Verse 15 reads this, The king of the north will come, cast up a siege ramp, and capture a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. This is where Antiochus III battled and defeated Scopus. Scopus, the Egyptian general, retreated all the way to Sidon, holed up in the fort at Sidon. They built siege ramps there until he surrendered in 198 BC, exactly as God had told Daniel. In verse 16, we read this in Daniel 11. Now he who comes against him will do as he pleases. No one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land with destruction in his hand. This is Antiochus, again, the king of the north, uh, the Seleucids, and he is in permanent control of the land of Israel. And the land of Israel here in this verse is called the beautiful land. It is called the beautiful land also in Daniel 8, verse 9, and in Ezekiel 20, verse 6. And Israel is now a permanent possession of the Syrian empire. Antiochus entered Jerusalem, and he punished the pro-Egyptian Jews, and by most of the people in Jerusalem, he was welcomed as a benefactor. 
They thought we've been under the Ptolemaic rule and we didn't like it. Maybe a new empire will give us a new chance and more freedoms. That was a short-lived hope. Antiochus III forced the Ptolemies to terms of peace. This is what happens in Daniel eleven seventeen. Look down there. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. And he will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it. But she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Antiochus III forced the Ptolemies to terms of peace. He had them cornered. He had them beaten. And he gave to the Ptolemies his daughter Cleopatra as wife. So Ptolemy V was to marry Cleopatra. This is not the Cleopatra of Julius Caesar's day. Uh, that would be the first century BC. This is Cleopatra I. And the design of the Seleucids was to have Cleopatra marry into the Ptolemies. So this is a, a reverse of the earlier play to marry in and eventually take over. And this one was foiled because Cleopatra actually loved her Egyptian husband and, support, and supported the Ptolemies in total. And verse 18 says, Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. But a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So Antiochus III, according to Daniel eleven eighteen, after defeating the Egyptians, after defeating the Ptolemies, he was ambitious to take land to the north. So he was seeking out land in the Mediterranean Sea area, what Daniel here calls the coastlands. And he had some successes. The problem with his successes reaching into the Mediterranean area, era area was that he was coming up against the emerging new world empire. It wasn't an empire yet, didn't have surpassing power, but Rome was there. And the Romans, along with allies from uh, Greek allies from the land of Greece, defeated Antiochus III. This was a surprising victory. It seemed like Antiochus had superior firepower and the Romans beat him. Antiochus III then fled to Asia Minor, that is modern-day Turkey, and at the Battle of Magnesia, uh, where Smyrna is located, 30,000 Roman troops defeated Antiochus III's 70,000 troops in 190 BC. So this was terribly embarrassing for Antiochus III. This was the, the rise of the military power of the upstart and coming Roman Empire. In 188 BC, the Romans forced Antiochus III to sign the Treaty of Apamea, where he would surrender territory, surrender much of his military and his equipment, give up 20 hostages, and pay ongoing annual tribute money to Rome, which he could not afford. Of those 20 hostages, one of them was his son, Antiochus IV. We've already met this character. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the guy who, up until that point, would have been the cruelest despot and the one to treat Israel the worst. He is a precursor to the Antichrist. We'll find out more about him next week, Lord willing. So one of the hostages of Antiochus III's loss to the Romans was his son Antiochus IV. That will come back to us. Look at verse 19. Daniel records, So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. This describes exactly what happened in Antiochus III after his defeat at Smyrna. He went home 
And he was killed in 187 BC by a mob. And the reason he was killed by a mob is he was forced to pay tribute money to Rome. He didn't have that in the treasury. So he decided to start robbing temples in order to pay the debt. And he went to the temple of Zeus and the worshipers of Zeus. The worshipers of Zeus were not happy with Antiochus III robbing from their temple to pay off Rome. So a a riot emerged and the mob killed him. It's interesting that Daniel portrays these details so remarkably. He went back to the fortresses of of his own land. He will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then verse 20, look what Daniel says. In his place, one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. So Seleucus IV Philopator uh, ruled from 187 to 175 BC after Antiochus III was killed. Seleucus IV was the son of Antiochus III. And he took a play from the playbook of his father. He sent a tax collector, a man by the name of Heliodorus. He sent him around to get the tribute money to pay off Rome. They had already been beaten up by Rome. They knew they had to pay this debt. And so this tax collector, Heliodorus, raided the temple treasury in Jerusalem. Went into the temple there and tried to get all the money that he could get. Um, history tells us that he was stopped supposedly by a terrifying vision of angels. And so Heliodorus gave up on this plan to steal money from the temple in Jerusalem. He went back to Seleucus IV and poisoned him. Perhaps to gain ascendancy to the throne himself, or maybe it was at the behest of Antiochus III's brother, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, Antiochus III's son, excuse me, who is Seleucus IV's brother. So the brother put up the tax collector, possibly, to poison him, to get him off the throne, to make way for Antiochus IV. What do we have here in Daniel chapter 11? From Daniel's perspective, and from the vantage point of the Babylonian captives, We have future literal history written. From our vantage point, what do we see? The details of Daniel's future literal history written unfolding in exquisite detail in our own history books. I want you to notice a few words in this text. Beginning in verse 4. The word but. And we're going to see this word again in verse 6, in verse 9, in verse 11, in verse 12, in verse 14, in verse 17, in verse 18, in verse 19, and verse 20. Either the word but or the word yet. In verse 4, we, we see that Alexander the Great accomplished things, but he died and his empire was splintered. 
Verse 6. There's an alliance formed. There's a peaceful arrangement. There's a marriage. But she will not retain power. In verse 9. The latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but he will return to his own land. That is Seleucus II going back home. In verse 11, we have, but again, Antiochus III's multitudes are given to Ptolemy IV. In verse 12, yet Ptolemy IV will not prevail. In verse 14, but the Jews who sided with Antiochus III against the Ptolemies and the Egyptians will fall down. Verse 17, but Antiochus III's daughter, Cleopatra, loved her Egyptian husband instead of the Syrians, and so she defected from the empire of her father. Verse 18, but a commander stopped Antiochus III, the Roman general Scipio. Verse 19, but Antiochus III was killed by an angry mob of Zeus worshipers. Verse 20, yet Seleucus IV was poisoned by his tax collector. What do we see in, in all of these events, uh, events with this little word but or yet? Well, we see the trail of murder and war and schemes and lies and conspiracies and politics and, and, and armies and taxation. But we see something else in this little contrastive conjunction. It is the sovereignty of God. All of these plans, all of these schemes, all of these conspiracies... All of these murders and marriages and treaties, all the building up of armies, all the invasion of foreign lands, all the usurpation and all the taxation. It doesn't ever seem to work out. It doesn't ever seem to last. You think, what, what good comes of any of these efforts after a single generation? Even in the lifetimes of those who conspired and came up with all of these plans, it's, it's like the wagon wheels are falling off of the, of the Egyptian armies and the, the chariot wheels are going haywire as they're pursuing the, the Jews through the dry land and the Red Sea. The same thing is happening here. The sovereign God of history is necessarily frustrating the plans of all geopolitics. Look, and some schemes, some conspiracies, some bad governments last longer than others. But we see in this train of disastrous geopolitical events, things fall apart. Things fall apart. Who's really in charge? Well, the, the whims of dictators go back and forth and the ebb and flow and the tide of politics. But God is sovereign over all of these things. This harkens back to the very purpose and the theme of the book of Daniel to ensure us that God is in charge, that the one true and living God is not just a merely regional deity of the Israelites, but is the one true God overall. And history is truly his story. He is writing it to prove that he is in charge of it. He tells exactly what will happen with history in successive centuries in the ebb and flow of empires surrounding his people, Israel. I want you to turn to the prophet Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 2.13... And listen to this rhetorical question. 
Is it not indeed from Yahweh of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? That is a a remarkably poignant rhetorical question. It, It assumes the fact that it asks, see, nations toil for nothing. Isn't that from the Lord? Isn't that from Yahweh? That is exactly what Daniel 11 portrays. That that all the back and forth and the goings on of all the mighty empires and all the resources involved with all of the armies and everything else, all the efforts and conspiracies, all the flow of human power grabs. Ultimately, it's all from the Lord. He's in charge of all of it. There is a message here to the Jews in Babylonian captivity, leaving Babylon now and heading back to Israel. What is that message? Uh, First of all, your hearts are not ready for Messiah's reign. (laughs) He's not coming yet. If the expectation was that you would go back to the land and experience the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 and you would have material blessing and peace and prosperity and the presence of the Lord and you would indeed be his people and he would be your God and he would fulfill all your desires and he would protect you from all enemies, that time is not yet. What is Israel going back to face? They're going back to build a ramshackle temple that pales in comparison to the Solomonic temple. It will pale in comparison to the temple that Herod builds later on. They have enemies pressing them even as they go back to reconstruct the temple. They go back to live in the land, but they do not have sovereignty as a nation. They are under the thumb of one empire after another. From the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians to the Greeks and then to the Romans and then... Significant dispersion after A.D. 70. The people of Israel are are not ready spiritually. They are not ready nationally at the heart level to be blessed by God in all that he has promised for them in their land. So while the people are going back to Israel, it is not the restoration unto blessing that the Old Testament promises point to. Not yet. And yet it is a significant comfort for those who believe Yahweh and take his word at face value. That all the events of politics that are happening, look, you could open Daniel 11 and you could read and you go, I just read this in the newspaper today. That's exactly what God said would happen. This is really a remarkable period of time in the intertestamental history where you could see the current events happening and unfolding and correlate them to what God had promised. Uh, we, we don't do that today, although there is coming a time where you can open the, the prophecies, specific details of prophecy related to the Great Tribulation, and see, oh yes, this is happening now. Some generation will see that. Uh, that's not where we're at yet in world history. But the people of Israel could see that in their own time, from the pages of Daniel 11 to the front page of their own newspapers, if they were to have such a thing. And what comfort should they take from this? That God is in charge. That they ought not rise up against Antiochus or the Ptolemies as if the Ptolemies or Antiochus could help them with, is the Seleucid Empire my hope? No, no, no. The Ptolemaic Empire is my hope. 
Oh, now they're dominating us. Okay, we want the Seleucids. Now they're dominating us. No, we want the Ptolemies. Now they're dominating us again. And every time they fight each other, we're in the crosshairs. We get run over by every successive Syrian war six times over. The last of which culminates in Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who paints the worst period of Israel's history up to that point. So their hope can't be in these governments, the next election cycle, the next empire, the outcome of the next Syrian war. Their comfort would have to be in something transcendent. And frankly, for Jews that went back to the land of Israel in the intertestamental period, their hope would have to be something beyond their own lifetime. Do you understand what it would be to be a faithful Jew and to read Daniel 11 and realize, oh my, One verse describes the entire Persian empire going away. Two more verses describe another empire in its entirety and a war and a complete domination of the known world. And then that falls apart and is split up into four and we're not done yet. I'm not going to live long enough to see the end of these things. Where would your hope have to be? In Yahweh in his sovereign purposes, and in the promise of blessing in the land that transcend these events. This would require faith contrary to sight, faith in God's word, faith counterintuitively against what we feel like we want to do when the world isn't going the way it should. Man, is there some human mechanism we can get to just make this world work outright? And God has set forth his plan. Our hopes would have to be beyond the newspaper headlines. What are the important things for us to take away from this text? I read several commentaries that all said, this chapter should not be preached. I don't know, you might agree with them already. This would be a good Bible study, but it doesn't make good sermonic material. (laughs) I don't know, the jury's out perhaps. There are lessons for us here. Number one, intertestamental history proves prophetic detail. The exquisite detail with which Daniel records what would happen for centuries after his time. From one king to the next. The king of the south will do this, then the king of the north will do that. He'll go back to his homeland. He'll die, but not by war. I mean, all of these things come out in exquisite detail down to the... Tax collector poisoning the emperor. (laughs) That's just remarkable. It means that Daniel is a supernatural book. This is breathed out by God. God is the only one who could tell the future and bring the future to pass exactly as he said it. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, he predicates his own identity on it. There is no one like me, Yahweh says. Go ahead and try to tell the future. Nobody does this. By the way, read Nostradamus if you want. He doesn't do this. Tarot cards don't do this. And the prophet on television doesn't do this. Only God does this. And that means that Daniel as a book is trustworthy. It means that the Bible as a book is trustworthy. And it also means that when God gives prophetic predictive details... We can believe them, even if we can't figure out exactly who it is and when and how it's going to work. We do know the that, and we believe it at face value. That gives us tremendous confidence at other prophetic 
sections of the Bible. A second takeaway for us is to recognize the ebb and flow of of politics and intrigue, of wars and rumors of wars, and recognizing our own misplaced hopes if we have cast our hopes on the next election cycle for all that we need for life and godliness, right? I I can hope that the next election cycle proves a, a better temporal existence for me and my family and for our church and for missionary enterprise and for freedom to be a Christian. Uh, There's nothing wrong in that. Please vote. You should vote and you should vote wisely. Uh, you, You should do your homework on those kinds of things. But there is a line crossed when we think our happiness depends or our godliness depends or the hope for America depends on the right people in place. Listen, there are no right people in place until Jesus is in place. And that leads to the third takeaway for us. It is simply a longing for the kingdom of Christ. What Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 2, what the whole book is running towards, the great statue of the compilation of human governance on the earth, the day of man will be smoked to powder at the day of the Lord. When the Lord Jesus has his day, that rock cut out without hands comes and smashes the statue, sends it to powder, scattered by the winds to the four earth, never to be seen again. That day is coming. And that is the day we are to long for, to hope for. And we pray, just as Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come. I want to close with Psalm 146. I would invite you to turn there. This is a psalm that reflects this very heartbeat. Psalm 146 begins with this outburst of praise. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh, O my soul. I will praise Yahweh while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. And then listen to this injunction. Do not trust in princes. Do not trust in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. That is a summary of Daniel chapter 11. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh, whose God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh raises up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. He thwarts the way of the wicked. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise Yah. Think about all those things that God does. The God who made the heavens and the earth. How he cares for people. How he brings up the brokenhearted and cares for the widow and sets right societal ills. You can almost see all of these promises emblazoned on political signs in yards. And yet, this is what Yahweh does. And when his kingdom comes... When Yahweh in the flesh dwells on the earth and rules the nations with a rod of iron, ruling Jerusalem and the nations from the throne of David, these things will come about. So we praise the Lord in anticipation of it, in hope. Our hope is in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for the unfolding of future history from the time it was written. 
Thank you for the benefits of being able to look back on it through our own history books and seeing the exquisite details with which these things were fulfilled. We pray that we would go with confidence once again in your word and our confidence would lead us to hope in you that we would trust not in princes in mortal men in whom there is no salvation. Their thoughts perish with them. All the schemes, all the machinations, all the plans, all the promises, all the threats, they all go to the grave which eat with each successive generation of finite, feeble humans. But you reign. You rule sovereignly over all the events of human history now, and you will reign manifestly on the earth when you return. We long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed.